Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois, Managing Partner of Lois LLC. Today our webinar topic is whether or not the defense of non-employment applies. And we'll be answering the question, is the claimant an employee? This is our New York Workers' Compensation webinar series. Today's date is April 17, 2017. And I thank you for joining. I hope you've been following along with our webinar series. Today restarts our curriculum. We'll be back working back through the basic topics, including defenses for the next couple of months. Our webinar is always the third Monday of the month. That is our New York webinar. And the fourth Monday of the month is our New Jersey webinar. If you have any questions about our webinars, please check out our website. We also have a copy of every webinar we've provided. There's more than 35 videos up there with closed captioning so you can watch them even with the sound off at lois-llc.com forward slash webinar dash archive. All right, uh, webinars are important and we love giving them, but they're just a small part of our overall outreach that we do here. Uh, I hope everyone watching and following along has a copy of my handbook. Certainly if you're part of this webinar and registered for it, you got a copy of our handout for today's topic which goes into much more depth than I can possibly go into in just a short webinar period. Uh, our website has literally thousands of articles going back uh, more than a decade on topics in workers' compensation law. Um, and please sign up for our newsletter, which is about twice a month. It is not spammy, provides links and information to important and upcoming information. Uh, and recently provided information about the legislative changes that we've had in New York, which are going to result in big reforms to our system this year. Uh, today's uh, webinar focuses on the defense of lack of employment. Uh, this is a very basic defense, and over the next couple months, we're going to be going through all of the basic substantive and factual defenses to workers' compensation claims in New York. Now, New York, if there is an accident, if there is an alleged injury, uh, not deny the claim, it will be presumed compensable. Uh, you have 25 days from the notice of indexing to file all of your denial of documents and controvert the case. And that's why it's important for you as a risk professional uh, or as an employer to understand what are the defenses available to you because you've got a short period of time to implement those defenses. Uh, remember in New York, it is a, uh, a gotcha state. So if a defense is not raised at the time uh, of indexing and prior to the first pre-hearing conference, of course that defense is waived. And this even applies to jurisdictional defenses such as lack of coverage and lack of employment. So uh, be careful. Who is our employee in New York? Well, it's defined in the statute. Of course, our statute's old and confusing. Let me make it simple for you. Uh, an employee is anyone who provides a service to a for-profit business uh, and who gets paid. And there are a lot of obvious employees. I mean, these are our W-2 employees with a pay stub that matches the name of the insured entity or our self-insured employer's name on the pay stub. We're clearly insuring or representing a for-profit business, and it's obvious that the employee works for them. More difficult uh, challenges like student interns, um, who can be an employee, uh, sole proprietors in New York, a sole proprietor can elect to be covered under their workers' compensation coverage, even illegal employees. And we're talking about people working without papers, undocumented aliens, et cetera, 
who have absolutely no employment eligibility under the laws, as long as they can show actual employment, and that means uh, that they were controlled and directed by an employer, uh, they can be deemed to be our employee. This is especially dangerous for our carriers who uh, sometimes will base premium on payroll, and some of these employees, such as day laborers, simply do not show up on payroll. I'm also going to talk about a few more difficult situations in New York uh, in challenging the lack of employment, and those typically involve sense that the employee is an independent contractor, truly an independent contractor, not really our employee at all, but has their own business, holds themselves out as an individual or an entity separate from us. Uh, volunteers are not employees in New York. If they're not being paid and they're working for a not-for-profit, they do not have to be covered by our workers' compensation law. And this also comes up in, in the trucking context. Uh, truckers uh, are, uh, many trucking companies allege that their employees are actually not employees, but they are independent contractors. New York uh, has its own test for that, and the uh, alleged employee needs to show their own bill of lading and their own Department of Transportation number. And if they can do that, they can show that they are not an employee. There's other exceptions, and they go into great, great detail. Remember, our workers' compensation law is over 100 years old, and during that period of time, many, many exceptions have been codified. I put them in the handout. They're very um, uh, rare exceptions. We don't see them very much, like clergy exception, et cetera. More commonly, we see a problem in New York with dual employment. And this is where an employee is uh, lent from one employer to another, uh, where there is a relationship between a contractor and a subcontractor. And in these situations where the employee has been lent or there is uh, an employer from one company uh, doing work on site at another company, uh, and these could be vendors, these can be contractors who are, for whatever reason, stationed somewhere else, uh, the court will look at who directs and controls the employee. Uh, it'll also look at other indicia of employment. Are we lending employees to another employer, and then the employee, our employee, our lent employee, is wearing the uniform of the um, uh, employer who is borrowing them? Uh, things such as that, who directs and controls them, who can remove them uh, from the work site. Uh, in those situations, the employee may be deemed to actually have two employers, the employer who pays them and then the employer who actually controls them. So this is something we have to be careful about with our employers who are lending employees uh, frequently, who have employees that are working in other uh uh, entities, work sites. Uh, this is something for us to be aware of, and this can absolutely increase exposure, uh, particularly for carriers and insureds who don't know maybe exactly where the employer is lending the employee to. We've also seen situations where the entity lending the employee does not bother to get workers' compensation coverage, puts them, uh, this person, in uh, under the direction and control of our employer. Uh, maybe they're an on-site vendor, maybe they're providing services, and then lo and behold, when the uh, claimant gets injured, they allege that they are the employee of the company borrowing that employer. So those are all challenges. Independent contractors. Um, New York has a very stringent test for who is an actual independent contractor. This is a defense that can be raised uh, early in the case, and essentially to be found to be an, a true independent contractor, the uh, person alleging to be an employee, we have to have no right to direct or control them, 
no ability to hire or fire their employees or control their employees. They should be in a different business from the alleged employer. Uh, for example, the employer is a large retail company with a big footprint in a mall, and they've hired a cleaning company to come in uh, and provide cleaning services overnight. Well, they're not, the cleaning services company is not in the same business as our retail company. And so we can clearly show that the businesses are different and we can make that argument that that's an independent contractor. Uh, they should have a different business entity and their own business entity, meaning the independent contractor or the alleged independent contractor uh, should truly have their own business card, business name, business registration. Uh, they should control their own method of work. This means they typically bring their own tools and expertise. Uh, generally, they'll bring their own materials, although simply supplying materials to an on-site contractor, probably not enough to make them your employee. Uh, and finally, independent contractors should have their own workers' compensation insurance. And of course, the one exception to that will be the single uh, proprietor employer who is not required to have their own coverage. All right, let's start looking at some typical questions and typical examples that uh, we get all the time and just start walking our way through uh, some of these examples. So Hi, Greg. This is Joey from the warehouse. Sarah just got hurt here because she was not following our safety rules. Can she file a worker's compensation claim? All right, so here's a question we're getting from Joey in the warehouse. He's saying, Greg, my employee got hurt. And by the way, Greg, this employee was not utilizing our safety uh, equipment or I see this all the time. I see employers just say, look, uh, this employee of mine uh, wasn't wearing their hard hat. They weren't wearing their steel tip shoes. This was a totally avoidable accident if they simply followed safety rules. And so this, this person did something that took them out of the employment. This is not my employee. Uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, uh, simple negligence on the behalf of the employee, simply uh, not following, following a work rule, simply uh, failing to use their protective equipment uh, or uh, doing something that, other, that violates a workplace norm, not enough to make them not your employee anymore. Um, it can go to the realm of intentionally harming themselves. I mean, this is literally someone who throws themselves off the top of your building after writing a suicide note. That would be intentional self-harm, and that's a different defense. But in regards to non-employment, simply not following safety rules, not enough to take someone out of the employment. All right, let's look at another example. Before our new lab tech even filled out his new hire paperwork and before he punched in, he was burnt by a Bunsen burner. Can he file a workers' compensation claim? All right, this is another typical question I see all the time. We've got a new employee, hasn't even filled out his new hire paperwork. We've put him to work for the day. Uh, maybe even before he punched in or before she punched in for the day to begin her work and she gets injured somehow. This happens all the time. Uh, this is someone who expected to be employed here. This is someone who we would uh, hopefully by the end of the day have their new hire paperwork filled out and therefore uh, this would be compensable and they would be your employee. Whether or not an employee actually punches in or not, uh, once they're injured by something that's unique or peculiar to the work site, if they're injured on the site, uh, whether or not they're punched in is not important. Now, from the carrier perspective, and this is really from the carrier perspective more than the self-insured perspective, this is where you have to be quite wary, carriers, of employers who are saying, uh, this employee got injured uh, on my, on my uh, work site. Uh, yeah, I hadn't filled out their paperwork yet. Yeah, they hadn't punched in yet. Uh, I would be very skeptical of that employer's practices, and there is obviously a potential there for premium fraud. If they're 
you know, reporting employment for employees after the alleged injury takes place. Uh, this is someone who never showed up on payroll before. Certainly in your three-point contact to that employee, that claimant, you should be asking them, how long did you work there? And maybe asking them for a couple uh, statements about that. And you find out that they've worked there for a long time. Certainly that would be a circumstance that I would be concerned about. All right. The holidays are a busy time for us. We hire temporary workers to handle the overflow. Are they entitled to workers' compensation benefits? All right, and I get this question a lot from my retail employers and other employers who have sort of a seasonal aspect to their employment. We can see in this picture, uh, they've got that Christmas tree in the background. It looks like this employer is saying, hi, Greg, we hired temporary workers to handle our uh, holiday busy time. Do they get comp benefits? Temporary uh, workers are absolutely entitled to benefits. Uh, it doesn't matter that they're only going to be expected to be hired for a month or two months or two weeks. Uh, once they step foot on your property and the employment's begun, they're covered. They're your employee. All right, here we got a guy uh, fixing uh, something. It looks like he got fried up. After the accident, we learned this employee did not have working papers. Can he still file a claim? All right, so here's a situation where after the accident's taken place, and this was maybe a longtime employee, we discovered that either they were using fake working or had them. We've discovered that this uh, claimant is not eligible to work in this country, and the employment may have been illegal. Uh, absolutely not a defense to employment. Uh, I want to be clear that the standards for working and documentation in this country uh, that are set forth by the federal government absolutely have no impact on whether a state workers' compensation claim can be found. This is especially troubling, of course, in some areas and some of the uh, venues that we appear in where the prevalence of illegal employment or undocumented ineligible workers is quite high. However, uh, they are still employees and they are still entitled to benefits. We have a 16-year-old kid who collects the shopping carts. He got hurt while working. It turns out he had fake working papers. Can he file a claim? Okay, so here's a case uh, where the employer's telling us we have a young kid. Uh, he's telling us this is a minor uh, under the age of 18. He's hurt while he's working, and it turns out he had fake working papers. Can he file a claim? Well, yeah. Uh, even though this was another ineligible employee, even though they presented to you fake working papers, doesn't matter. Uh, they are still entitled to workers' compensation, and because they're a minor, they can either elect to go outside of workers' compensation and sue you directly in civil court or seek double benefits. Now, the other interesting thing I want to bring up here is the idea of fake working papers. We've also had cases, and we've defended cases, in which the claimant uh, presented fake uh, working papers from a um, uh, uh, illegal immigration standpoint. In other words, uh, was a minor and also presented papers saying they were eligible to work in this country, which were also fake. Uh, so here, in, in the case that we defended, we had a minor representing himself to be an adult and an illegal employee alleging that he had a work status in this country. Now, the employer said, look, I, I shouldn't get in trouble here. I shouldn't be penalized. I shouldn't have to pay double benefits. And remember, those double benefits come directly from the employer for hiring a illegal uh, and 
and we said, well, yeah, let's make that argument. There is no good faith defense. You can't come into court and say, by the way, judge, uh, he presented fake papers. We relied on those fake papers. The employer has a strict liability, and they cannot rely on the good faith representations of their own employees. So really dangerous. Let's look at another example. We use a staffing company to supply our plant workers. If one of these lens employees gets hurt, can they file a claim against us? All right, and here's a question we get all the time. Hey, Greg, uh, we're using a staffing company to supply plant workers uh, for these jobs. If they get hurt, do they file a claim against uh, The good news is uh, they should be filing a claim against the staffing company that provided them. Uh, I would presume that they're showing up on the staffing company's payroll. Um, so, you know, that should be taken care of by the lending company. Uh, however, the employee often doesn't understand that relationship and will file against everybody. They'll file against the name on the door outside of the plant that they're working in. They'll file against the staffing company. This will come into court. And when it comes into court, the judge is going to ask them a couple simple questions. And they're going to say, who directed and controlled your uh, work? Where did you uh, go every day? And it is possible that the employer borrowing these employees will be found to be one of the dual employers. Now, typically shouldn't be a problem because the lending company, the staffing company, should come into court and say, yeah, that was actually my employee. And you know what? We're going to take responsibility for this. And, you know, typically even in the contract between the lending and the borrowing company, there will be some sort of indemnification or hold harmless in which if the company borrowing the lent employee is found to be the employer in workers' compensation courts, the lending company, this would be the staffing company, would agree to reimburse them or hold them harmless for any exposure they have. Another example. Here at the gym, I pay all the trainers on 1099s. None of them can file a workers' comp claim against me, right? Okay, here's a typical question we get all the time. This is an employer who is confusing the tax status of their employees with their status under the workers' compensation. As I said earlier, the tax status or the, uh, uh, the way the federal government looks at an employee, and truly on paper they might be a 1099 employee and uh, be considered an independent contractor for uh, tax and benefit purposes, but that's different than the way the workers' compensation court is going to look at this employee. And certainly the tax status of the employee is unimportant in New York. They're going to look at who actually directed and controlled the trainers working in that gym, not so much who paid them or how that was qualified to the federal government. Another example we see uh, where independent contractor issues come up all the time is in the trucking industry. All of the drivers we use are independent contractors. They can't file a claim, right? All right, and this is done typically because the exposure and liability in the trucking injury in industry is so high, one of the most dangerous employment contexts. The transportation context, the defense of independent contractors is going to be very dependent on how truly independent that uh, trucker claimant really is. And the courts are going to look to whether or not they had their own bill of lading whether or not they have their own Department of Transportation registration number, et cetera. They'll also look at things such as who provided the equipment, who owned the truck. Does this trucker have only one client and that client is the alleged employer? Uh, so all of those aspects of that relationship will be looked at by the Workers' Compensation Court in determining whether or not this trucker is truly an independent contractor or was actually an employee of the uh, trucking carrier. 
Uh, and you know, also, let's take another look at independent contractors in the construction context. All these workers on this construction site are not my employees. They are all independent contractors. That will hold up, right? All right. And this is a very typical situation we have where a general contractor or a contractor in a construction site is unclear and needs some guidance about how the uh, subcontractors are going to be viewed and how all their employees are going to be viewed. The situation in New York where we have large amounts of day laborers working on construction sites all the time, and they're not quite certain who they even work for. And so we see a lot of claims where the uh, day laborer or the laborer uh, gets injured on a work site where they're doing something very basic, carrying bricks, moving materials, uh, just, you know, uh, fetching things for the, uh, the skilled laborers. They're not even certain who they're working for. They just know that they were getting paid $150 a day. And so what they'll do is they'll come out into the parking lot and take out their cell phone and take a picture of every single construction vehicle that's on the site and then bring a claim against all of them because they're not quite certain exactly who worked for them. Uh, in those contexts, clearly somebody's their employer and they're, they're going to come out. Now, more uh, uh, another uh, context we see in the construction world is the general contractor hires a number of subs, uh, subcontractors to do various aspects of the job. Uh, that general contractor has to be careful because if any of the employees of the subcontractors, and this could include day laborers, meaning undocumented workers or cash laborers, if any of them get injured working for the subcontractor, and the subcontractor does not have workers' compensation insurance, well, that would certainly, the exposure would certainly travel up the chain to our general contractors. That's something to be wary of. The other thing to be wary of is exactly how independent the different contractors are. Uh, if the general contractor is giving a lot of direction and control to the subcontractors, um, including things like giving them uniforms, uh, supplying them their tools and materials, uh, directly overseeing and supervising their work and directing their work, they may be found to be the dual employer at the minimum, if not the actual employer of those subcontractors or contractors and found to be their employer. So those are another context where we see this defense of not my employee coming into play. All right. I hope this has been useful for everyone. Next month, our top common defenses will be going through all the, uh, the various jurisdictional and substantive defenses. Uh, and then uh, at the month after that, we'll be going into the going and coming rule that would be arising out of and in the course of. I hope this was useful to, for you today. Please feel free to email me any questions you have about this or any other topic. And I hope everyone has a wonderful week. See you soon. Bye.